On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be chatting about hoaxes because heaven knows there are plenty of them going around. Some hoaxes, some just wrong news. How do you figure out what you can actually believe and not believe with so much information coming at you around the coronavirus at all times? We'll talk about that. We're going to be telling you a great news story out of this whole horrible fiasco. If you need something to just feel good about, We've got that for you. Stick around for that one. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Olympics because there is a bigger and bigger push on that the Olympics must be canceled, maybe postponed, but the pressure is beginning to mount that this can't be done, that the Olympics can't be put on in July with this still underway. We'll explain a little further, and then we are going to keep it a little bit lighter. If you could choose a fictional doctor from over the years on TV from ER, from Grey's Anatomy, from wherever. If you could pick a fictional doctor to look after you with coronavirus, who would it be? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I think a lot of us, maybe most of us, are feeling a little overwhelmed right now just with the sheer volume of information that we've been taking in over the last number of days and weeks because there is just so much of it flying around. And clearly it's not a bad thing to be well-informed. It's the opposite of that. We want to be well-informed, but there's times when it seems like it's coming at you a million miles an hour and just so much of it that processing what's important and what's not important becomes difficult and processing what's real, what's accurate and what's fake becomes very difficult because it's all just blending in together. Well, we're going to concentrate for the next few minutes on that last bit. Because in the midst of all this tsunami of information you're taking in, some of it is bound to be incorrect. Some of it worse than that, intentionally incorrect. Now, mistakes happen. The legitimate media tries to get things right, makes every effort to get things right. Sometimes, though, when you're dealing with the deluge of material, they are dealing with it too. Mistakes can happen. Usually those are fixed, though, rather quickly. But what about the other stuff? Stuff you're seeing on your Facebook post or on Twitter feed or some other source, and you hear it and you go, wow, didn't know that. Well, the reality is there are hoaxes out there that people in the midst of all this are accepting as true. I want to bring in Mark Busser, Dr. Mark Busser. He is a Mac uh, prof. He is an, he teaches one of his courses, an interdisciplinary examination through the lens of the social sciences of the role of hoaxes, myths, urban legends, and health scares in our contemporary social media landscape. We had him on just a few days ago. Love having him back. Dr. Busser, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. So would I be correct in suggesting, uh, as I've read through a number of these things, most of the hoaxes that we've seen regarding the coronavirus have really been kind of ridiculous. I mean, the idea that if you drink bleach, that'll help you hold it off, or if you just hold your breath, that'll be a test to determine. I mean, these things sound patently ludicrous, a lot of them. They do, and sometimes it's hard to tell uh, what's meant to be a a real proposal, just a joke uh, or satire that people are just trying to sort of play a prank on the public. So it's really important to watch out and uh, be careful of the difference. Because it seems sometimes, and it's not just with this, with a lot of hoaxes that people put out there, the more outlandish the claim, somehow the more a lot of people seem willing to accept that claim. It's so ridiculous that it can't possibly be made up. Well, that's one of the tricky things about our sort of uh, 21st century media culture, right? We have so many places to get information from that it's really hard for sober, steady reporting or analysis to get through the, the voices that typically get heard and circulated 
are uh, the ones that make outlandish or extreme claims. And then sometimes uh, folks who don't believe that stuff but think it's really a spectacle or really just astounding or shocking or upsetting, they end up forwarding it on, which only increases the amplification. So sometimes um, those who are skeptics and those who are really wanting to challenge and point out nonsense end up being transmitters too. So it really ends up being a uh, sort of a tricky cycle. Ironic, you're almost describing what we're hearing about the coronavirus. You may not show signs if you have it, but you could give it to someone else. I mean, it's really what I mean, you're describing. I, I think there there are some comparisons of that. Uh, when we talk about going viral, right, we, we're usually talking yes. about ideas and news. And, and sometimes you can be a carrier of bad information and a relayer of it, even if you don't believe it. And that's one of the unfortunate things we have to study when we take a look at sort of the social science of how myths and misunderstandings get relayed. Well, and there's a second part, I think, to what you're saying, and that is oftentimes you will see someone who will retweet or forward on Facebook or something, something they see. And then they may realize five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes later when they apply their judgment to it that, yeah, of course, that's ridiculous. But our instinct is to hit that button that says push it on to the next person. Right. And so sometimes you'll see people post sort of contradictory stuff or uh, sorry, things that contradict good taste or good sense. Um, and then when, when their friends or family challenge them on it, they say, well, I, was, I don't believe this. I just was showing it to you. And I, I think that is also worth questioning and challenging people on. It's not always so helpful just to repost something just because it's spectacular, uh, it, especially in an environment where everybody is worried and upset and looking for good information. It's, it's good that we question our sources and question what we're promoting and showing to people. But Mark, I I don't believe that the vast majority of the public in North America, we're, I mean, we're pretty educated. I don't believe that most people are idiots. I mean, I just don't. I, there are idiots, but I don't believe most people are. So why do so many people accept or buy something that their logical brain would tell them that can't be right? Right. I think it's it's connected to some of the ways we use myths and stories sometimes to understand things when, when we're young. Um, we've, for a long time in human history, right, tried to make sense of a complicated world by simplifying it. Uh, sometimes I think we have our own biases, right? I, I have mine, you have yours. We all, we, we know that bias is a really hard thing to eliminate totally. And sometimes when we're scared and upset, we try to look for clear stories and to simplify new information in forms that already we're comfortable with. So with clear heroes and villains, um, sometimes uh, in, in today's world, we're so um, often shaped by partisan political framing that we really are concerned about us versus them, left versus right. And then when we hear new information, we start building that into our existing sort of biases and our, our understandings in a way that sometimes distorts the new information so it fits what we already believe. And that happens for smart people uh, just as much as it happens for, uh, for people who are, maybe aren't as smart, like you're saying. Uh, it's, it's a very human thing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting about hoaxes because they're all over the place right now on social media, online in your discussions with your friends, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally, but there is a lot of questionable slash bad slash ridiculous information out there. Dr. Mark Busser talks about, teaches about this at McMaster in hoaxes and conspiracies and urban legends and all that kind of stuff. And Mark, just before we get to the people who start this stuff and what their reasoning is, you touched on something just before the break, and I just wanted to pick it up for a second. Is it difficult for us? Is part of the reason we're willing to accept some of these things 
because it's difficult for us to grasp the idea that sometimes there simply might not be an easy solution to a problem. We just accept that there must be an easy solution. And so if it says drink bleach, hey, that sounds pretty easy, so I'll do that. Sometimes we don't want to accept that there just isn't one. I think so. Uh, I think not only is it tempting to believe there's just going to be an easy, quick solution that this one nutrient will change your diet, that this one exercise will trim that belly fat, uh, that really things are much more complicated. In addition, it, uh, challenge, we, um, it can sometimes be hard to realize that there's sometimes multiple reasons why a problem is there in the first place, that the problem it doesn't just have one single source. And so uh, this is where a social science approach or a real scientific approach can come in where we start looking at how complicated the world is rather than trying to simplify it. So what about the hoaxers? Because all this information originally starts somewhere, and I assume that there are some people that are unintentionally giving out bad information. They don't really mean to, but there are others clearly, you know, that, that again, some of these things like drinking bleach or whatever, there are some people that must be doing this. You, you mentioned that it's a joke. I mean, is this generally done as a joke or is there some other meaning behind it? I think there can be many reasons why people start um, conspiracy theories or rumors or hoaxes. Uh, sometimes I, I suspect that it is sort of uh, a prank. I mean, it's, it's not always clear how old the people are. It could be sometimes quite young, uh, young online participants who are sort of typing in stories and kind of speculating and joking just to see how far it can get. Uh, we do know, though, that there are also people out there uh, who start um, rumors or uh, conspiracy theories or hoaxes in order to sort of embarrass or um, sort of bother their opponents to, to troll them or to get a rise out of them. Sometimes this is just to sort of just poke at, uh, at opponents. Uh, sometimes it can be for uh, more strategic political purposes in you know, high-stakes party politics within a country, or sometimes even in international affairs. Um, making your enemies feel awkward or making their supporters question themselves can be a sort of strategically uh, valuable thing and unfortunately leads to a lot of the misconceptions we see. And financial gain, I assume, in some cases. Oh, of course, right? Uh, um, there's not a big difference between hoaxers and people who do phishing scams, who call people and lie about who they are and what the circumstances are to try to get the money, get your money out of you. Um, there, there's a website now. There, there's probably many that are doing this. I came across BuzzFeed uh, BuzzFeed News today, and they're I think doing. I don't know if you agree. They they seem to be doing a pretty good job going through a lot of the hoaxes that are online right now and breaking down whether they're legit or not. Are are you in agreement there? I think so. Yeah, I think they're they're doing a lot of work to try to kind of respond to events. They try to be hip and cool in the news reporting and respond to unusual events as they happen. Uh, there's others like Snopes. Dot com, which is a, a famous um, kind of debunking site, or if you like a um, kind of a threaded discussion format, Metabunk is another one. But uh, it can be, fortunately, really good business for news agencies to kind of pick up on rumors and misperceptions and to try to correct them. Mm. This is one of the fundamental roles of the media and of journalism. Uh, by the way, tomorrow evening on the show, the woman, the reporter who's been doing a lot of the debunking and investigating is going to join us to talk specifically about some of these hoaxes that are going on, about the specific ones. We didn't have time to do that today. But, but here's where this gets really confusing, Mark, is that one of, the, one of the things that was debunked was a rumor that was out there a few days ago. And when they said, no, this is not true, that cities are going to be going into a shutdown. And at the time... When they debunked that idea, that was true, that cities were not going to go into a shutdown. Well, then, you know, hours later or a day later, that thing that was not true becomes true. 
when you have a story like this, that there's so many moving parts, it becomes very difficult then when things that weren't true suddenly become true or vice versa to, to keep up with all this stuff. Of course. And that's, I think, unfortunately, one of the realities of trying to coordinate responses to major issues like pandemics. Not only do you have multiple layers of government who are each responsible for different dimensions of disaster and, and pandemic planning, but you also have uh, sort of this uh, anticipatory uh, sort of feeling where everybody just wants the newest information as fast as possible, which is totally understandable. But what happens while they wait is people tend to speculate and embellish or just guess uh, at, at what what's going to happen next. Uh, and in, in 20, today's 24-hour news cycle, there's so much pressure to fill that airtime, even when facts are scarce, that we end up trying to guess or trying to t- kind of think of what could possibly happen. And that gets half remembered, sort of like that old telephone game you might have played mm. with friends where you pass the story along from ear to ear and see how it twists. Okay, I, I've literally got 30 seconds is all, but you, you teach an entire course on this, so I'm asking you to compress an entire semester into 30 seconds. Uh, what, what's your advice for people then when they see stuff? What, how do you sort through this in a good, smart way? My suggestion is to question yourself, uh, double-check things that, that you're reading about, and especially check your news sources and start considering which traditional news sources might be more valuable uh, than we think, especially those that correct their own mistakes. I think double checking and looking at multiple sources of news and looking at different sources of news that contrast with each other can be a really valuable practice both for students and for our lifelong learners who are out there in our community. Dr. Mark Busser, we love having you on here every time. I appreciate it. I know we just had you on and we got you back again and made you work again, but we love having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's pretty difficult to remain very upbeat when you're hearing stuff about scary illnesses and death tolls and catch rates and futures and stock markets and on and on. I mean, it's really hard to find happiness and joy in those kind of moments. Well, let me tell you, I saw a, there was a tweet that I saw yesterday that stood out because in the doom and gloom, boy, it was a ray of sunshine and not to be cliche or silly, but it really was. Um, Everybody knows Jamie Campbell. If you watch Blue Jays ever on TV, you know Jamie. He's the host of the Blue Jays broadcast on Sportsnet. Very familiar face. He's on every pregame, every postgame, in between, talking about the game. Well, on Twitter yesterday, he wrote this. It's a scary time, but older people may feel particularly isolated and alone. If your parents slash grandparents are Blue Jays fans and you think their spirits would be raised by a phone call, send me a direct message with their name, number, and best time to call. And I just immediately thought, what? An, that's a great gesture. That is an amazing gesture. I just thought that was a perfect thing to do. Jamie Campbell joins us now. Jamie, well done. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Nice to speak with you. Well, you as well. And as I say, I, 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 you, you probably jumped the queue because I have a feeling a whole lot of other people who do similar things to what you do are going to copy this. At least I hope they do. But where did the idea come from for you? Because it's great. I can't tell you where the idea came from. I was riding my bike the other day trying to think of ways to um, help people, reach out to people. Um, as you know, social media is kind of a one-way street. You can put thoughts out and, and certainly try to elicit reaction, um, but there's there's really no true back and forth. Um, and I was recalling the times when, and I and I do this frequently, where I'll be somewhere in this country, um, in a 
in a bar perhaps or a shopping mall and somebody will come up to me and say, oh, my grandmother just loves you or my dad's a big Jays fan and just loves you. And my immediate reaction to them is, well, if you've got a phone, let's call them right now. And so oftentimes I'll stand there with people um, and talk to their fathers, their mothers, their grandparents, and it, it shocks them that uh, that I'll take that time. But I think it's really important to to make that connection with people if they are taking the time to be viewers of Blue Jays baseball. So um, I thought to myself, well, you know, I could probably arrange to speak to people by phone now that we all have so much downtime. Uh, so yesterday morning I went out and bought a, uh, a second phone. I uh, got myself a brand new phone number and uh, put the tweet out. I, I must admit, I don't think I was expecting the reaction I'm now getting. I have, I have, I think, almost a thousand direct messages <laughs> that uh, I am trying desperately to coordinate in some fashion. I'm keeping a logbook of all the people I'm talking to so that I don't make repeat phone calls. You're going to have to hire a staff. I have two young boys, and, and they're there not you busy, go. So, so maybe I'll pay them nothing to, to help me out. <laughs> Did you and think... that's been the great part is, is, you know, this is not one of those, um, you know, recorded messages you might get from a municipal, municipal politician. I, I, I have these great conversations, so it takes a good 15 or 20 minutes just to speak to one person. And, uh, and that's what's, you know, that's when I look at this list of people that I hope to get to eventually, I, I realize it's going, to, it's going to take a long time. And it seems that we all have quite a bit of time at this point. I think you, by the sounds of it, because this has happened before, as you say, in malls and stuff, you knew there would be some reaction, right? You knew that if you put this out, it wasn't going to go into a vacuum. Somebody yes. was going to respond. Honestly, what did you think was going to be the response? I thought that maybe I'd get 50 or 75 people reaching out through direct message and, and maybe it would take me three or four days to reach out to all the people they've asked me to reach out to. Um, but I think I probably get 150 or 250 new requests every couple of hours. And uh, it's, it's a little overwhelming because I just don't think I'll be able to get to everybody, but I'd like to think I can. That's the funny part is that I'm, I'm trying to, to log everything so that I'm not calling people in Newfoundland or in the Atlantic provinces too late, right? I, I kind of keep track of the, the area codes and if they mention the city or province, but I'm now very familiar with Canada's area code system. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, I'm refraining from calling anybody in the Atlantic or Newfoundland time zones after about 9 p.m. Eastern, and then I try and save all the 604s and the Vancouver Islands and the Albertas and Saskatchewan's for later in the evening, knowing it's still early out there. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Just before I came on with you, I just got off the phone with uh, with Sheila and Tom from St. John's, Newfoundland. You do that very well. Thank you. Well, yeah, we had a great conversation. They were floored when I called, and they've got such beautiful accents. So uh, it's kind of ingrained in me now. So are you, I mean, this only started yesterday morning, I understand. So when I say are you, I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's a very short time frame, but are you doing this? almost from morning to night? Is this your full-time job in the absence of baseball right now? I, I wouldn't call it full-time. I, I make a series of calls after breakfast, and then I've got two kids, and I like to get them out and keep them occupied. So, you know, I'll just put the phone down and turn off the computer, and we'll go for long walks or go get lunch or something like that and try and stay away from masses of people. And then, 
you know, they'll come home and, and do a little work or, or go on their electronics or whatever it might be. And then maybe that gives me an hour or an hour and a half to call some people. Um, it's been fun. It's been very, very therapeutic in a way for me, simply because I'm getting a really good sense of, of the people who watch the Blue Jays, the people who watch our show in particular, what they're like, where they're from, what their histories are like. You know, I learn all about their grandkids and and oh, I've learned so much about people. It's been incredible. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jamie, what are you hearing from people? So you get on the phone with them, you take 10 or 15 minutes. What do they say to you? Uh, you know, as in general, they're 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 very upbeat. You got to keep in mind most of the people I'm speaking with are you know over the age of sixty, and in many respects over seventy and over eighty, and several have been in their nineties. So all of them are remaining indoors, uh, and they're remarkably upbeat. A majority of them are in very very good spirits. They kind of chuckle at the situation. I mean, not that it's it's um, not a serious matter. It's just that they're doing what ever they can to stay out of the way of um, of this raging virus and being homebound is is at this point the way to do that and they've got kids or grandkids who are you know dropping food off at the front porch in many respects um, so for the most part it's been very encouraging in that respect they all miss baseball they all miss live sports in general I mean that's the the the, the, the most common strain is that there's just there's nothing to watch in the opinion of so many of Hmm. these people on tv right now and and they can't believe that a week from tomorrow was supposed to be opening day and there won't be any baseball game being played but you know once we dive into some things i get personal stories I, i i talked to one woman in her late 90s who made it through the great depression um i spoke to a gentleman on vancouver island just yesterday who was told about 11 years ago that that the brain cancer that he had um, would give him about six months to live, and he's still alive over a decade later and doing very well. Um, and he'd escaped to Canada in the late 60s as a young American who was drafted into the Vietnam War. And um, I've just I've had some just remarkable conversations with people. It's it's really been quite uh, quite invigorating for me, to be honest with you. Well, it's one of the I think it's one of the really interesting things about sports is that in normal times you will have people say, oh, you work in the toy department. It's just fun and games. It's not really that important until, as you mentioned, it's taken away and you start to realize how much sports means to people. Yes, it's important that way. Right. And and baseball in particular. I mean, look, baseball, especially when the Blue Jays went on their division run in 2015 and then into the wild card game in 2016 captured a very, very young audience, just the way the Raptors did last year when they won the championship of the NBA. But what you always get with baseball is this steady hand-me-down tradition of having played catch with mom or dad uh, back when you were a little boy or a little girl, and it seems to carry throughout your life. And so I have found over the years that our, our older viewer relies so heavily on that evening baseball game, that uh, that notion that the ball game at night is kind of like your best friend. It's always going to be there for you unless there's a rainout. And if there's a rainout, they'll try it again the next day. And baseball becomes um, uh, like comfort food for a lot of people in that respect. And now they're faced with the prospect of not only no games this month, but certainly not in April or May, 
possibly not in June, quite likely not in July, and we don't even know when it's all going to begin again. So that void, is, as much as it's just sports, that void has an impact on them, and now they're trying to figure out how to fill all the spare time. Yeah, if you're, especially, and I'm not a senior, but I'm, I, you know, my grandparents and others who, you know, I've watched them. My grandmother used to be a diehard Jays fan. There was never a game that she didn't watch, especially if you're shut in or if you're in a senior home. This becomes a huge part of your routine every day yeah. that you're going to watch the Jays. You know, you can build your clock and your day around that game. And that's why, you know, that, that is something that I have been so acutely aware of for so long that it, it impacts even the way I prepare for a broadcast. I mean, I could be in the middle of August um, at the Rogers Center against the Baltimore Orioles, and both teams are 30 games out of first place, and it might be meaningless to everybody else, but, but I always recognize that people who watch this team every single night are relying on quality, on information, on entertainment, on you know a decent effort from the players and it's 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 never lost on me that you can never just show up at work and not care it's it's a passion that that follows me to the ballpark every day because i know how much people rely on baseball every single day regardless of how the club is doing so you know it's amazing how it becomes such a fabric in their lives uh still open to taking more direct messages and making more phone calls or have you shut it down? <laughs> oh no, I haven't shut it down. I, I, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to have to restrict people from at least reaching out, but, um, I just, you know, it's not a, it's not something that's done quickly, right? It's mm-hmm. not, um, it's not a simple 30 second greeting. It's, it's a conversation with people. And I think at this point, people want to have conversations on the phone with, um, whoever, may be interested in in um in spending some time with him so it's it's you know i'm prepared for the fact that i i won't get to everybody but the people i do get to i want to make sure that there's time to chat time to find out how things are going um and, and really have a good conversation a good healthy conversation so that uh that we both get to walk away with something from it. Just before I let you go, because sadly we're out of time on this one, have you had anybody yet when you call up and say, hey, it's Jamie Campbell, and they go, who? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had one old lady say, are, are, am I getting punked right now? <laughs> yeah. She oh, knew I, the it, phrase punked. That's good. I, I think every third call they don't believe it, and I have to sort of explain myself, and then they figure it out. It's wonderful. Listen, it is wonderful, and kudos to you for doing this. And as I say, I I think there's going to be a lot of other people that pick up on this. I hope they do because it's a fantastic idea. You've got some time now. I mean, I know you got kids, but it's it's well, it's a great thing you decided to do, Jamie, and and good on you for doing it. I'd love to see other people do it, Scott. I really would. You could commit a half an hour or an hour a day, especially to seniors who are, are shut in. It's it's not that difficult. I'd love it if other people picked up on it. Jamie Campbell, you can uh, someday, again, watch him on Sportsnet. If not, maybe he'll be calling you or your parents. Jamie, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. No trouble, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So today in the New York Times, uh, there was a piece, there is a piece, you can find it online right now, under the headline, Cancel Period, The Period, Olympics Period. Not much wiggle room in that one. Cancel the Olympics. This piece makes the case that really at this point, with what is going on in the world, there is no adequate defense for the idea of the games going ahead in roughly four months from now. Too much unknown, too many moving parts, too much risk, too much everything. Cancel the Olympics is the name of the piece. The author 
is someone that we are glad to have back. Uh, Dr. Jules Boykoff from the uh, Pacific University in Oregon was on here maybe about a month ago to talk about some other Olympic-related stuff, and then he wrote this, and I said, we've got to have him back. Uh, He's the author of Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, among a number of other books. He's also written on the games and the Olympic movement. He joins us now. Dr. Boykoff, thanks for coming back again. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. Uh, let me say this. You did not uh, step lightly or tread lightly into this one. You sort of dove in with a sledgehammer into this point. Well, I can't take credit for the title. The New York Times makes the titles, but I wasn't dissatisfied with it. I thought it hit the mark in terms of what I was trying to argue. And I mean, the basic core of what I was trying to say, Scott, was that under these conditions of a global pandemic that don't appear to be leaving us anytime soon, it's kind of ridiculous to press ahead with the Tokyo Olympic Games that, as you mentioned, only start four months from now. And by doing the Tokyo Games, I was saying, just pointing out what scientists are basically saying, which is that we create this huge, potentially perilous Petri dish, basically. And so for the sake of global public health, I was arguing that the Tokyo 2020 game should be canceled. Uh, you chose one, I mean, you chose a lot of words, and they were well-chosen words, but one that jumped out, and I'm sure for other people, other words would have really resonated, but you used the word unconscionable. It's a, I mean, it's a really, uh, it's a pretty devastating word, because we can disagree, but you're saying, no, there's not even a possibility for a disagreement here. Well, I, I just think that, for a long time, the International Olympic Committee and people who run the games remind us that the Olympics are bigger than sport. But now that something that is clearly and obviously bigger than sport comes along, they're kind of acting like sport is actually the most important thing all along and that we must press ahead with sport despite the fact that we have a global pandemic. And so I guess that's the point I was kind of trying to make in the essay. Let me go through a few of, and now I'm sure, have you heard any reaction from people? I'm sure you've had people who have agreed with you. Have you had anybody take issue with you? Oh, sure. I've had a lot of people, um, mostly they're connected to the International Olympic Committee in, okay. in one way or another, or they're, you know, they're milking the Olympic cow with both hands. It tends to be those kind of people. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, look, you read the piece, Scott, it's just looking at the evidence in front of us. And having spoken with me before, you know I'm not just some grumpy academic who, like, hates the Olympics. Absolutely not. I spent half my life playing high-level sport, got to represent the U.S. Olympic soccer team in international matches. So I'm not just, like, anti-sport or anything like that. So, I, yeah, I've got a little bit of pushback, but, you know, I think the arguments speak for themselves. I will never, ever not think of that image of milking the Olympic cow with both hands. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Sorry. That's a, that's a great line. I, you know, I wish I'd thought of it myself. I would have used it in a story, but I guess I, I'll have to just credit you with that one from now on. That's a great line. Um, okay, so let's go through, because I'm guessing, I'm guessing, and I haven't obviously read the emails or the responses you've got, but let me, let me go through what I expect are some of the counter-arguments to your point that we have to put the Olympics aside. The first one I would think would be the Olympics are still four months away. We have no idea what is going to be the case four months from now. Reality is it could be worse or it could be much, much better. In, in a month, we could be talking about this in past tense. So why jump the gun? Yeah, the fair question. I guess I would just turn it over to the scientists for that one. And a number of studies that have come out around COVID-19 have projected that the disease won't actually even reach its peak until winter 2021. So we're in for a bit of a long ride and probably need to buckle up. And if you think about it for a second, the way the Olympics function, 
bringing all sorts of people in from around the globe, um, it just is going to create problems. You know, we're putting each other and ourselves in these titanium tubes called airplanes, and we're coming over to Tokyo with all of our germs, and we're exchanging them even more on those on those planes. And then we arrive there, and then you know, live together in close quarters. It's just a recipe. Everybody's been saying, you know, scientists have been saying this is a recipe for transmitting the disease is to have the Tokyo Olympics. I mean, the New York Times reported that. The 15 countries that have the most coronavirus cases to this point represented almost about 36, 37 percent of the athletes that were at Rio Olympics. So we're talking about sending to Tokyo athletes who come from countries where there are very high infection rates. It's just a recipe for trouble. And it's an optional recipe for trouble for those who actually love the Olympics and want them to happen. That I respect that. Um, but we're talking about global public health here and trying to stop a pandemic. Is there anything, following up on that point about what could happen in time from now, is there anything to be said for clinging to hope or clinging to optimism? The Olympics are a very, very, uh, they're put on a big stage and they're one of those things that there's a big light on them. And the idea that, you know what, it's good for people to have something to look forward to and express confidence that we can move towards something like this. Sure. I mean, in a fractious world, for a lot of people, the Olympics symbolize international cooperation, collective positivity, you know, goodwill. There's no question that the Olympics are very popular and they have super high symbolic value. I I argue in the essay that, you know, cancellation of the Olympics might appear on its surface to be an ominous gesture. But in reality, it would actually be a remarkable act of global solidarity that's not out of tune with many of the principles that the International Olympic Committee has in its own Olympic Charter. And I can tell you, Scott, I've read that Olympic Charter from page one till the very end, and there's some wonderful and lofty principles in there. I would say at the end of the day, many of those principles side with the precautionary principle, which is to say we take precaution and not throw people into danger if we don't have full information. And that's the kind of situation that we're looking at right now. And that's why I argue that cancellation is the safer course. And the cancellation is actually, as I say, a remarkable act of global solidarity that the International Olympic Committee, if it believes in its Olympic charter, should be happy to take the lead on. You and I, last time you were on here, the, the thing we were chatting about, I think most, if I recall our conversation, was about the finances behind this. And that becomes another real issue here because uh, Japan reportedly has already spent something in the neighborhood of $26 billion on this. Yeah. Um, that, that, is a, that is a staggering amount of money if we turn around or if they turn around and cancel it to just sort of say, oh, pff, whatever. And I, ha- I mean, look, money drives stuff. I have to believe that that's going to be a dominant part of the discussion of what do we do about the $26 billion Japan just flushed down the toilet. It's definitely a consideration. There's no question about it. There are definitely powerful interests that are very keen to make sure that these Tokyo 2020 games are staged on schedule. And, of course, we talked last time about the television broadcasters, and in particular one from my home country here, NBC, which forks over about half of the money that the International Olympic Committee recoups from broadcasters. We're talking in billions here to to broadcast the games, and they make a lot of money off of it, NBC. Now, NBC and these other broadcasters, I can't speak for all of them, but if they're smart and their lawyers are doing their job, they have insurance. NBC certainly certainly does. And so they're not going to lose money per se, but they're certainly not going to gain the kind of uh, profits that they've become accustomed to. And, you know, Scott, I'm glad you mentioned the overall money situation because 
we'll be hearing and your your listeners will be hearing over the next few weeks about how these Tokyo Olympics were to cost about $12.6 billion. But they need to keep in mind what you're saying, which is that actually they're pretty much double that. And that's according to an audit by the Japanese government itself. And the other thing your listeners might want to just kind of keep in mind is that when Tokyo initially bid on the games, they were only supposed to cost $7.3 billion. So even if you agree with their $12.6 billion figure, that's nearly double what they said it was going to cost in the first place. And unfortunately, this has sort of become par for the Olympic course over the years. Cost overruns have become endemic to the games. It's a little bit like Etch-a-Sketch economics. You know those Etch-a-Sketch machines? You put one of them... You know, you write a letter or a number on that, and then you just, you, they, you then you get the bid. Yeah, you're hosting the Olympics. Then you shake up the etch sketch and you write a new number that's usually multiple of that. So that's behind the scenes happening. But you're, I think what you're, what you're raising is an important point. In a way, going way over budget actually kind of ups the ante for trying to recoup the costs and the funds because the price tag has gone up. But, hey, what I've argued in this essay and what I think is the correct path, both in terms of ethics and what's good for the planet, is that, Fiscal irresponsibility, like not following through on the lower budget that you initially said, does not justify making worse a global health emergency. I know, as you've pointed out, you did not write the headline. That said, it didn't say postpone the Olympics. What about the idea that some have proposed that, okay, you know what, you're right. Uh, clearly, this is not going to be easy or responsible to do right now. But let's just say we'll do it the exact same time in 2021. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I do mention that in the article that that is a, another path that's possible. Um, you know, the the thing about it is everybody that's raised it in, within Olympic circles, if you raise it to them, they're not keen on it, which tells you one thing. So Jap- Japan's Olympic minister immediately said, no, we're not postponing. Everybody within the Shizu Abe government in Japan said no. But I think maybe what's more interesting is, you'll remember, we talked about this last time, there was an interview with an IOC member, Richard Pound, from yes. your country of Canada up there. And he said back in, he, he said a little while when he did an interview with Stephen Wade of AP, that they needed to decide the Olympics by the end of May. But what struck my mind was that he also said, postponement's basically impossible. You pretty much have to cancel if we're not going to we're not going to postpone. And I thought, okay, that's interesting when an IOC insider realizes that it's a whole lot more complex to just postpone the Olympics because after all, it involves broadcasters like NBC having to make sacrifices. If they push it back, that means they have to compete for eyeballs in a crowded sports calendar. If they push it all the way to the following summer, that would maybe be more possible for them because then they could get in that sort of sweet spot of July, August when there's not a lot of other sports happening in the United States. But postponement also adds costs. You know, you and I were just talking about costs a second ago and how they've gone through the roof in Tokyo. But now you're going to pay for the Tokyo 2020 team, which is pretty sizable. You're going to pay them to stay on staff for another year or who knows, maybe more. You have to maintain these venues that you were going to pass along to the public to maintain. And so, you know, there are additional costs involved. And then it, there's also the little matter of qualifying for the Olympics. And you've heard many athletes actually speaking out, wondering what's going to happen to them and really stressing out about the situation, which I, I feel bad for them, knowing how much you know effort and time and mental fortitude it takes to qualify for the Olympics. And they're wondering what the heck is going on. So there's just a lot of moving parts with postponement that need to be thought through thoroughly 
and makes it kind of a more complicated path than it might seem on the surface. I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't sure if mentioning the athletes, even though they're the centerpiece of this, somehow sounded like we were diminishing the importance somehow. But I think it is important because you've now got, we just had here in Canada on the weekend, as an example, we had the wrestling qualifiers. And so you've now got a number of athletes who have allegedly qualified for the Olympics. But if the Olympics get put off for a year, who knows if those athletes, the idea is you qualify because you're at your best right before you go into the games. Do they carry into the Olympics a year and a half later when they may not be the best? Or do you have another qualifying tournament? And then what do you do with the people who thought they'd qualify? I mean, it it's not, it, it's a secondary part as far as health and pandemic and all the rest, but it creates a real complicated situation. I agree. I think you put it beautifully and it's an important point. The IOC often talks about how athletes are at the center of what they do the question is is postponing or in the case of what's happening right now just not really going either direction just putting athletes in this mental state of limbo is that really athlete centered uh, i think it's, it's pretty hard for them to make an argument that it is and and let's face it right now we're hearing from athletes around the world saying that training is increasingly difficult for those who are trying to participate in the qualifiers for the olympics that they don't even know if they're going to happen the United States Olympic uh, and Paralympic Training Center was, has been shuttered for at least the next month. And for people here in the United States that might like to train at a university, they're not able to do that because universities are shutting down their facilities as well. And, you know, right at this point, only around half of the athletes have actually qualified for Tokyo 2020. So about half the slots are still wide open. And you're hearing from athletes now that are saying, you know, that IOC has, is not showing very much transparency in what they're talking about. And, you know, this lack of transparency that is sort of an endemic problem within the International Olympic Committee is kind of coming, coming back to haunt them. Olympic-level uh, Olympic athletes are quite rightly wondering, you know, what is going on here? Who is driving this ship? Unfortunately, we're out of time uh, almost. But ultimately, um, do you expect the IOC to ultimately bend here, or are they so stubborn that they're going to blast through and tell people, you know what, show up if you want, don't show up if you don't want to, but we're having the games? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the International Olympic Committee has a long record of being, you know, stubborn, as you put it, um, dogged, I, you might say, in their determination <laughs> to make the games happen. They've lived by the motto that the games must go on. But I'm sorry to say, you, you can have all sorts of platitudes, you can pray as much as you want, but viruses don't listen to platitudes, and they don't much care about your prayers. And this virus is spreading across the globe right now, that's why the World Health Organization has called it a pandemic. And this is serious business, and they're going to have to come to a day of reckoning sometime soon. I wouldn't have written in the New York Times to cancel the games if I didn't think it was an actual possibility, and if I didn't think it was the right thing to do. It's my... My prediction, knowing that prediction is incredibly uh, tricky business, especially in light of a pandemic, but my prediction is they are going to have to reckon with this reality, and they're either going to have to postpone or just cancel the games outright. And if they don't, do people show up? Boy, that's a tough question. Uh, I think you're, that's the, the call that individual people are going to have to make, the individual athletes are going to have to make. I, I think in doing that, that would really expose the reality that the Olympics are not athlete-centered. I mean, folks that follow the Olympics, they know that, that uh, the IOC says that a lot, but there's a lot of evidence that, in fact, they're not all that athlete-centered. I mean, think about the doping crisis that's happened that they haven't really properly dealt with. 
think about the the athlete abuse that has happened, especially in my country. You know, with gymnastics and swimming and other sports. Um, that, you know, the Olympics have been very slow to move about that. This might be the final straw for a lot of people. They don't want to support it anymore. I have talked to a number of pro football players and asked them specifically, in light of what we now know about CTE and concussions and all the rest, if you, when you sat down to sign your contract, if they made you sign an additional piece of paper that says, when you're 50, you will be drooling, and you will not be able to move, would you do it? And almost every single player has said, yeah, I would take that chance because I just it, it was my dream. I believe that if they held the Olympics, the athletes who have worked all their life to get to this point are put in a position where I think every single one of them just about would decide to go, whether or not it was healthy or not. Yeah, I, th- I mean, we're, we're guessing into the future, but you're probably right. I mean, as I said before, I've, I've been in these shoes too. When you're young and you're in your 20s and you're feeling at the top of your game. There's a certain invincibility that runs through your mentality. It kind of has to to be at that high level, and that might lead athletes to go there. But let's not forget the economic part of it, too. I mean, there are a lot of athletes who go into major debt to try to realize their Olympic dreams, knowing that the only way of kind of recouping those funds that they've thrown into their training and, and travel is to do well at the Olympics, maybe get a gold medal. You get money from your country. You get paid for your medals but also to get those uh, sponsorships that will be there for you if you're mm. successful at the Olympics. So, like, there's actually a monetary element to all this as well. You're going to be in major debt, many of these athletes from the lesser-known sports, if you don't try to go for it and go to Tokyo, despite all this happening with the virus. It's a fascinating story. Uh, people, go read it. It's, uh, it's online at the New York Times right now. You can find it. I think it's going to be in the Hamilton Spectator tomorrow, or it's online at the Spec. I know they picked it up. Um, Dr. Jules Boykoff, you can, again, cancel the Olympics is the headline. Whether that's the headline that's in the spec, I don't know. Uh, doctor, really appreciate you taking the time again. Love having you back. Oh, thanks, Scott. Good to talk to you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So right now it appears that the medical community is still in a state of crisis and being stumped about what to do with coronavirus, how to solve coronavirus. So I think it's time we dive into an untapped resource, that being all the fictional doctors who've ever worn the white gown on TV. And there are hundreds of them. Hundreds of actors have portrayed doctors on TV for better or for worse. I thought, who would we want? Who would we want? If we could turn one of these people into real life, who would we want working on this problem and trying to solve the issue of coronavirus if we could bring one of these people to life? You know who I thought would be able to help us sort this out? Tim Boland. You see him every morning on CHCH. And I thought Tim is a guy who has watched endless amounts of TV. He works on TV. I don't know if he's ever portrayed a doctor on TV like so many other people, but I figure Tim, of all people, would be able to walk us through this. Tim, how are you tonight? Scotty, how are you, bud? I'm doing okay. I'm great. This is late for you. You're up at like two in the morning, so we're keeping you up late. Here, here's here's the here's the good part. I I'm not working tomorrow. Oh, good. Well, there you go. I'm not working tomorrow because I was supposed to go to a concert tonight that got canceled, obviously. And then I wasn't going to work tomorrow because we wake up with the crack of silliness. And it's <laughs> true. So then I had booked tomorrow off, and then obviously with everything that's going on, I continued to. Uh, I have I have tomorrow off too. <laughs> 
to sit at home and recover. Well, here's well, what I want to... Yeah, there's craziness going on behind me. That's all right. You I'm, know, I'm missing bath time right now, Scott. So fam- this is actually great. This is good timing. Family time is good time. Yeah. Uh, so here's what I want to do. We found this list yeah. online of... And now, it's not a comprehensive list. There's a lot of doctors that have been left off this list. One in particular that really rankled me, and I can't even think of his name right now, but the doctor from uh, Emergency, Squad 51 back in the day. Daisy was the, uh, was the nurse, and I can't remember the doctor's name. He's not on this list somehow, and that's a shame. But I want to go through some of these. You know a lot of these doctors. You know these guys and women you've watched. Each one that I give you, give me a 1 to 10, 10 being great, 1 being not a chance in the world. If we could make this a real doctor, would you trust this person to start working with coronavirus? Can I I put a disclaimer out there before we start this? Absolutely. Is there anybody on the list from Grey's Anatomy? There will be. Okay. Should I get my wife on the phone? She's watched every episode and I haven't watched one. Well, I, I, here's the thing about Grey's Anatomy, as I understand it, because I'm with you. I have not watched more than maybe one or two episodes from what I've lies. read over the oh, years. Lies. No, I <laughs> apparently they have killed off almost every person on the show season after season. So uh, we're probably going to have 35 Grey's Anatomy doctors. So we'll just lump them into one category, except for what's her face, who's still on there right now. She's sort of the, the big deal. Let us start with this one, though. Tim Watley, Dr. Tim Watley. Brian Cranston, who was on Seinfeld. Now, he was a dentist, so I don't know if he... Dentist. He was the anti-dentite. I'm not an anti-dentite. That is, that is for sure. I love my dentist. I, I, I love the Watley. Uh, I, so, what, was it 1 to 10? Yeah, would you trust Watley to be, uh, to be helping you with coronavirus? Definitely don't trust Watley, but uh, there's so much respect <laughs> there. There's so much respect for just being such a moron. And you can't I, be an anti-dentite, so you have to give him a good grade. Yeah, do I... So well, is, a passing being, grade. Yeah, a passing, so a six. Okay, a let's, six. Let's, let's, do, let's do Watley a six. Sh- Dr. Sherman Cottle. Do you know who Dr. Sherman Cottle is? I, I do not. From Battlestar Galactica. Oh, no. Okay, no, you're not a Battlestar Galactica I, fan? I, I am not. I should All right. have done my research ahead of time. No, no, no. I'm, I am not a sci-fi guy, so I was throwing it out there hoping you might know. There are people out there right now yelling, because I have no idea if he was even a good guy or bad guy. I'm sure there are people yelling that he's either a 1 or a 10, because it's Battlestar Galactica, Tim. You're, if you're a Battlestar Galactica person, you don't have no opinions on this. I'm, 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 I'm on the Googler, and I'm not... Okay. I'm on, I'm on the Googler. I'm not seeing him. Okay, keep Nothing? going. Okay, no, no, that's fine. Uh, let's keep going. We've got a ton of them to go through here, and I'm skipping through the ones that... Dr. Elmer Hartman from Family Guy. Ooh, okay, respectable. Respectable. See, I, see there's, there, there's respect for Family Guy, but what... I'm not as familiar with the work of... See, like it was Dr. Nick than, like, I'm a more of a Simpsons guy. Oh, all right. Guy. Well, we may come to Dr. Nick. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Okay. Dr. Jennifer Melfi. Did you ever watch The Sopranos? I, I'd say I'd give it, like, a nine and a half. I, I, she, she would be able to talk you through the, the entire process and be able to get you out the other side, I feel. Yeah, I don't think she's going to solve coronavirus, but you Definitely might feel not. okay about dealing with it. Yes. Yeah. Big, big Melfi fan. Big Melfi fan. Uh, okay. Dr. Leo Spaceman. Did you ever uh, did you ever watch 30 Rock? 30? Okay, okay, yes. So um, Chris Parnell, who played Dr. Leo Spaceman, who graduated from the Ho Chi Minh School of Medicine. <laughs> right there, I'm giving him about a two. <laughs> okay. I, was gonna, I, like, I initially thought a three. 
but I you, again, it's hard. It's hard what you're doing here because you respect the uh, you respect the work. But in this situation, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go one better, Scotty. I'll go three. Three. All right. Do you know who Doctor Philip Chandler was? Philip. Philip Chandler was on Saint Elsewhere and was portrayed by a young Denzel Washington. Yes, I should know this because CHCH in their retro programming is airing Saint Elsewhere. They are. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I don't not. I do not know Denzel Washington. But my producer, my producer Don, is a, is a religious watcher. We, we should. I should call. I should call him for a lifeline. Do you do any lifelines? We should do a lifeline next time. Next time. But it's Denzel Washington, so even if he was a terrible character, he's got to be at least a seven or an eight. He'd have to. He'd, he'd, let's go seven, seven and a half. Seven and a half. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bob Hartley, Newhart. Yeah. Okay. Again, we're back into the psychiatry kind of thing, so do you put right. Newhart at the same level as, as Sopranos? Uh, well, I'm just more familiar with Melfi and the Sopranos, so it, like, but you got to respect the... You got to respect a legend like Bob Newhart and be able to. Yeah, I, I'm going to go about seven there too. Oh, All right, Doctor Richard Kimball. Kimball, the fugitive. Oh, see, here, here's the thing. I'm kind of regretting my Melfi <laughs> one because, like, I was, I was just so excited to hear somebody that I recognized that <laughs> I went big because Kimball, he could get you out of any situation. That's true, right? Anything that you're that you, that is thrown at you, he could figure out how to get out of it. You could be uh, in a room filled with a cloud of coronavirus and he would somehow be able to dodge his way through. And, and, and like figure the science out behind. Yes. And then realize that it was a guy with one arm that was to blame. <laughs> um, yes. I, I, oh, I gotta go. I gotta go nine and a half. I nine guess. and a half. I, all right. Cause I, cause I gave Melfi that, but again, regretting that one. No, no, but okay. But you're still leaving some room at the top. And I think I know where you're going to go at the top, but uh, all right, here's, here's a very complicated one in the 1980s. This guy may have got your first 10 today, a little more tricky. Dr. Heathcliff Huxtable. I was, if you didn't get to him, I was going, I was going to say, is there a category for TV doctors that are now in prison? Uh, well, there, there's one of them. I, I, mm. There is, there is one big fan of Heathcliff in the eighties. Not a big, not as big a fan of Heathcliff now. That'd be a, that'd be a one. <laughs> that would be a, um, save the career kind of move by not saying, oh, Bill Cosby's my favorite man. That, that's, that's going to. I'm so happy you went there though. Because uh, if you didn't, I was going to, I was going to circle back around to that one. How about Dr. Marcus Welby? Now this is way before either of us, but he, I mean that, just that name is a legend on TV. Dr. Are you familiar with Marcus Welby's work? No. All right, Marcus Welby, uh, anybody who's listening who's probably over, I'm going to say over 65, would know Marcus Welby. I really don't know much except the name. It was a big, big show once upon a time. We'll pass Marcus Welby. We'll give that one a pass. People out there can yell at the radios what it would be. Here's one for you. Dr. Mark Sloan. Now, you may not know who Dr. Mark Sloan is to know whether he was on diagnosis murder. Dick Van Dyke played Dr. Okay. Mark Sloan. Okay. That alone, um, again, I, I think you got to go into the, the high grades just because it's Dick Van Dyke. Diagnosis, diagnosic murder. What, 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 what year is this? Is this the 90s? That would be the 90s into the 2000s. I think this was probably beyond right after Murder, She Wrote. Oh, right. <laughs> it's probably yeah. in that milieu. Right. Uh, what, yeah, like, 
can can we choose Angela Lansbury? Is she an option? Like, I don't think could, she's a doctor. I mean, no, but like, but she could solve anything. That's true. She could have solved coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, she's an honorary doctor, a doctor of letters. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Um, we yeah, keep so moving. We keep yeah, moving. We keep moving. Okay. Doctor Ross Geller. Yes, Geller. He was a paleontologist. That's true. I don't know how helpful that's going to be. The dinosaurs yeah. are all dead. I mean, obviously, they didn't do too good a work. Yeah, and he's like he's probably still obsessed with uh, Rachel. So, like, that takes most of his focus away from any of my issues. I, I'm going to go four. But that, four. That's, that, that's going to be. Uh, I think you're high. A fan favorite. I, I, oh, I'm not you're high. I mean, the number's high. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not working tomorrow. All right, here's one. Sean Murphy, the guy from The Good Doctor. You know the one we see the commercials, a million commercials right. a day on the, the never, autistic doctor? Never, never seen the show because, okay. But you've seen the commercials. I've seen the commercials. He, he's, I, I respect, respect the game. I don't know how he is. I, I, he looks I like a, he should be good. Okay, oh, I'm, I'm going to go six. Six, all right. I just don't know. I don't know which way. Here's, one that, here's one that I'm going to jump in with an early nine on at least. Dr. Jack Shepard. Okay, uh, okay. From Lost. Yes. Nice. Okay. If you can survive Lost, which I think I'm still trying to figure it out, but I believe that he survived Purgatory, if I understand the show correctly, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's good. See, again, I'm, I wish I had the list in front of me because then I could have, like, I went too too high too early. You know, and I was like, <laughs> it's like a, it's like the slam dunk competition, the NBA all Don't give him a 10 right off the bat. Yeah, I'm going too high, right? Uh, like, I'm going eight. Eight. All right, Doctor Nick. You said Doctor Nick before. Doctor, he just popped doctor, up. The doctor, doctor Nick from some, some uh, Simpsons. Yeah, Doctor Nick is is outstanding. He's a, he's a buffoon, but like, come on, you just have to respect. I, I'm I'm going, I'm going about seven and a half for Doctor Nick. All right. By the way, we're so. counting down with Tim Bolin here. The fictional doctors we would want solving the coronavirus if we could bring them to life. Uh, here's a guy that I'm going to give a one to, and if I could go lower, I would. Quincy M.D., only because he was a coroner. seems like it's kind of missing the point. <laughs> Quincy M.D., okay. What's that? Quincy M.D.? Jack Klugman played Quincy, and he was a coroner, and as I'm saying, by the time you get to see him, a little oh, late for anything. Right, okay, gotcha. Yeah, see where you're going. Yeah. Uh, Dr. David Bruce Banner. Oh, if, oh, you I wouldn't like me if I'm I, angry. I wish I wish this was uh, not on radio and uh, TV because I, uh, for my 40th birthday, I dressed as Bruce Banner. Did you? Uh, for the for well, here's the thing. Here, it was a theme party for uh, the year 1978, and uh, dressed as Bruce. But came to the party as Bruce Banner. Somebody upset me. Left the party. Came back as somebody else. Nice, so, nice. Right? Came back all uh, green. Excellent. Yes, yes. Uh, Bruce Banner. Mm. Uh, that would be a seven and a half, Scott. He'd, he'd be furious enough at coronavirus to, like, beat it up. Yeah, right. He'd take it out. Yeah. Uh, Abby Lockhart. Dr. Abby Lockhart from ER. Mm, okay, we're getting into... Okay. Did she have curly hair? No, straight hair. Uh, straight played hair. by... Played by... Oh, uh, Maura Tierney. Maura Tierney. Not not like, All right. not familiar has to be under a five if I'm not familiar. Dana Scully, Doctor Dana Scully from X Files. Oh, oh. Mulder okay. was the guy who was all about feelings, and Dana Scully was all about the science. Not Donna Scully. That's right, Dana. Oh, oh, <laughs> okay, because okay, yes. 
Uh, let's go. Let's go with three. Producer three. would be my my producer would be upset because he has a serious crush on her. Yes. Uh, Trapper John from Mash. Mash. Okay, that's we're we're we're, we're getting more respectable again. A little bit. Uh, I'm a little bit younger than that world. That my dad would uh, would be given a higher grade. I'm going a six. A six. Okay. So Trapper okay. John. Yeah. Uh, here's one. See if you know this name. Doctor Drake Ramore. Uh, that Joey played on Days of Our Lives on Friends. Nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who fell down the elevator shaft and then had someone else's brain implanted into his head. So he's actually no longer with us, so he's not really going to be helping us out. Well, uh, not exactly. I love the randomness of this and how they're like in no specific <laughs> order. Way to go, Radley. <laughs> um, let's go two. A two. I think that's a wise one. You don't want him involved in anything. No, Dr. Drake Marmore. Doogie Hauser. Oh... I was hoping you were going here. This is my wheelhouse. Is this I, okay? This is this is this is like I grew up on Doogie Hauser. I, I I don't know who you got left because I want to give somebody a ten, but that's nine and a half, man. Like so, imagine so that show was on in the nineties. Yep, and he was like thirteen. Imagine where he is now. Oh, he'd be like, a he'd be what, a specialist. What, what he knows. Yeah, he'd be a specialist for sure now. World specialist, world renowned yeah, specialist. Like he, 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 he's solving everything. I, oh, okay. Okay. Um, okay uh, house. All right. Well, that, uh, like in some of the lists that I saw, he, some say he is the greatest TV doctor of all time. I'm not, I, I know the name, not as familiar, never really saw the show. He, he and, and you know what? His bedside manner sucked. He was always okay. dour. So here's the thing: in this situation, you don't need good bedside manner, do you? Well, you just want somebody that's good. That's true. It's coronavirus. All right, we got a minute left here. Hawkeye from Mash, but the most famous doctor from Mash. Okay, that's a nine and a half. A nine and a half. All right. Yeah. A couple more. Let me see where we going here. Um, uh, We did how? Okay. Uh, Let us go to. And we're missing a bunch of them. Like there are so many of them. Whoa, Uh, whoa, whoa! whoa. What about what's George Clooney? Well, we're getting there next. We're getting there next because we have two of them. We've got John Carter and Doug Ross. George Clooney and um, Anthony Edwards. uh, Well, Anthony Edwards was uh, was where did he go here? He was on the list. He's another one. Mark Green. Yeah, Anthony Edwards was Mark Green. Mark Green. Okay. Uh, Well, Clooney's got to be up there, right? He's just so. So is Clooney your ten? Yeah, I don't want to give him a ten. Who's who's your ten? Who's your doctor? Who's a ten? Doogie Howser. Doogie Howser is my ten. Ten. All right. Doogie Howser is my ten. Clooney gets a nine. Melfi's up there too. Who else do I got? Doctor Nick was up there. Any anybody else? Anybody we're missing here? Well, although the hundreds, we're missing hundreds of these. And and by the way, I was just sent an email that uh, from ER, uh, Doctor Kelly Brackett was the name of the doctor on uh, on a uh, pardon me on emergency. So. Um, well, there you go. I mean, we look. We could do this all day. I, uh, sadly, we're out of time. But uh, there's there's hundreds of people. But I'm, I'm I like your choices. Get the ER guys in there. Get the yeah. Sopranos one for a little bit of psychiatry, and, and we're good to go. Uh, Tim Bolin, you cannot see him tomorrow morning on CHCH unless you drop by his house and just peer in his windows. That's where you, where you could see him. But uh, the a next safe day, distance, though. A safe distance. six feet at least. Yeah. Tim Bolin, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks, Bradley. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.